Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to our Friday morning series. Uh, I believe today is February 18th, which means that we're about uh, two years plus into the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, really remarkable. I mean, I was looking at the numbers uh, yesterday. Uh, it's, it's astonishing what has happened throughout the world the number of people that have been infected, uh, hundreds of millions. I mean, it's just incredible. I mean, it's a, and, and what has happened in the U.S. and here in Connecticut. The good news, and I think Dr. El Shabib will tell us, is that we're uh, in the, on the other side of that horrible Omicron curve. And hopefully, uh, he won't introduce any new Greek letters. I'm confident that he won't today. We don't want to see any more Greek letters coming up. Um, but we'll hear from him. The, the science will, will drive that. And then uh, we brought Dr. Enos back. Uh, James is uh, one of our pediatric cardiologists. I know there have been a lot of questions by the pediatricians, uh, healthcare team members about uh, return to uh, back to sports. Uh, about, what about the EKG? When do you get it? Uh, so he's going to provide some, some answers to us. Uh, and uh, he is an expert in this field, works uh, with, with you in the community and in pediatric cardiology. So I think we're going to have a very interesting session. Uh, you know, please uh, type in your questions as you normally do. Um, Monday, for those of you who have off and are, can, can do that, uh, I think we have President's Day. So I was told to wish you a happy President's Day weekend. Uh, and make sure you do that. So hopefully you have three days. Uh, most of us don't. But if you do, enjoy it and have, have some fun. Uh, so without further ado, I'm going to ask uh, Hassan El-Shabib to come up here. He's one of our outstanding pediatric infectious disease faculty providing services to all of you. And Hassan will, uh, will play the role of John Schreiber today. And uh, now John will be back in two weeks. So he's on service today, so he's actually taking care of patients. So John, if you're listening, thank you for taking care of the kids. And Hassan, please. Uh, good morning, everyone. It's nice uh, to be back. I'm just going to uh, provide a quick uh, bunch of updates, and there are a, couple of, a bunch of things we need to, to talk about quite a bit uh, today. So let's start that. So all of uh, you know that um, Omicron seems to be the predominant variant uh, across uh, the, uh, the U.S. and across uh, pretty much a good part of the world. Actually, some parts of the world, uh, Eastern Europe and some parts of Asia, are starting now to see the Omicron, uh, Omicron um, uh, um, a wave uh, coming in. So you may hear news, international news, at least for those who follow those news. Uh, some of the countries are seeing an uptick in these cases and an uptick in Omicron cases. Uh, you can see uh, the pink color uh, over there uh, is the um, uh, Omicron version 2, as I'd, I'd like to say. It. It's the BA2, and it's kind of creeping into the U.S., uh, but it doesn't seem to be, um, at least uh, it seems to be clinically significant at that point in time, although uh, it has been popping up across the U.S., and it seems uh, at least uh, some of the parts of the U.S. seem to be having uh, an uptick in those uh, cases. But overall, the total number of cases, as I'll show you next, uh, seems to be waning down. We still are considered a high transmission across uh, the U.S., uh, although if you look at uh, how things have been changing in the past weeks, you're, noticing, you're probably noticing how uh, much some of these um, uh, counties and some of the states are kind of winding down when it comes to uh, the number of cases. And hopefully, this, I'm, I'm, I'll bet this in the next uh, couple of weeks will look very, very much uh, different when, than what it is, uh, at least uh, today. Uh, these are a rundown of the quick uh, from your left uh, to your right, uh, the number of cases, uh, the number of hospital utilization, and the number of deaths. And again, if you, look at, if you look at the comparison, you see that the number of cases are much higher than hospital utilization, and fortunately much higher than uh, deaths uh, when compared, for example, to the Delta wave that we had uh, uh, late last year. 
This is the U.S. Uh, national data. You can see the number of cases picked up quite a bit uh, during um, uh, during the Omicron uh, wave. Uh, the number of deaths, uh, the number of deaths on the right, uh, seem to have uh, also picked up, but it's not it's not as uh, much as what we had uh, in uh, in the past. And don't forget, this is U.S. national data. Some of the states have better immunizations. Some of the sta states have better uh, have much more stringent mandates when it comes to um, uh, masking and social distancing, uh, allowing or um, disallowing uh, any uh, public uh, uh, public gatherings and all of these stuff so there may be a different uh, variations in that looking at the Connecticut data we're still a high transmission so a high transmission is considered uh, anything above 15 cases per 100,000 of the population although you can see compared to previously that you used to see uh, the whole state is uh, colored in red you can see some of the counties uh, or some of the towns uh, are starting to shift to a, a lower case count and again much like the much like the US uh, national data or much like the US um, map when it comes to transmission rate I think this will be quite a significant change in the next uh, couple of weeks as the cases uh, go down and you can see on the top right uh, corner uh, with the with the little graph over there you can see the huge number of cases that we had in uh, from that started up in uh, early December up to January and now uh, winding down uh, and you can see on the top uh, on the left on the lower right uh, corner you can see how much uh, the number of deaths has been definitely uh, mitigated uh, from uh, from then uh, uh, quite a bit uh, compared to the previous waves uh, that we've had so these are the kind of the data I just want to go through. I didn't want to go to into too much detail since uh, many people are already up to the news and you can hear uh, so many uh, talk about uh, different like different media and outlets and different experts coming up and saying yes the the, the COVID uh, at least this wave is winding down and it seems uh, this hopefully will continue into the near uh, future. Uh, we're going to touch a couple of uh, topics that came up uh, in the last uh, couple of weeks uh, since Dr. Schreiber's uh, talk. I'm going to start with a bit of a couple of articles that came up uh, with the COVID-19 complications. Obviously, with these, they also include adult uh, data, so just keep that uh, in mind. But you can see on the left side that there are, uh, given that uh, the pandemic has been going on for a while, we've been learning more and more about this uh, viral infection. And it seems it does produce quite the long-term cardiovascular uh, outcomes, uh, whether that's uh, heart-related or whether that's uh, cerebral related, uh, but you can see um, dysrhythmias, ischemic and non-ischemic heart disease, pericarditis, myocarditis, we've had our fair share of uh, adolescents uh, that came in with this uh, complication. Uh, so, and unfortunately, a good number of them had, have had these complications, and it's uh, not a short-term, but a long-term outcome uh, too. On the right side, you see that people with asthma, uh, that's a UK-wide uh, survey that was done, uh, obviously, in the UK, showed that um, People with asthma had a much much higher uh, much higher use of their inhalers after the COVID-19 infection. Uh, had much um, more interventions, uh, needing interventions uh, compared to those who never got infected. Uh, so there is um, definitely complications that we're seeing as we move along, and I wouldn't be surprised if more and more comes up um, in the near future as research uh, picks up uh, around these uh, complications. From a maternal perspective, uh, some data from 12 countries have studied a small number of cases where they looked at the placenta pathology, and they have shown that it does produce the, the COVID acute COVID infections during pregnancy produces some kind of acute placental injury or what they're terming as placentitis or inflammation of the placenta, and it is direct and direct correlation to uh, to COVID, uh, since they were able to identify uh, COVID or, or coronavirus particles in these um, uh, in these. Uh, 
uh, in these specimens, uh, and they were able to correlate to, uh, yes, when having an acute uh, COVID infection, there's a likely um, problem with, uh, with the placenta, and obviously that could, uh, uh, could cause some uh, fetal uh, problems. And you can see on the right, some button in I think this study was done in uh, Botswana. There were other studies outside uh, also that country. And they also looked at uh, the maternal outcomes when it comes to um, uh, 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 women who were pregnant and who developed acute COVID. And they had an increased risk. Uh, so there was 13.4 versus 9.2% of uh, obstetric-related complications, um, including postpartum hemorrhage or infection and whatnot. And, and uh, obviously give, taking into factors some of, some of the other comorbidities that can happen. So uh, definitely data is coming up. And this is not uh, really uh, unusual. Uh, pregnant uh, women are at risk, for example, for uh, the flu from um, developing severe disease, um, implicating, uh, causing major problems uh, for, the, for the pregnant woman, and at the same time causing also uh, some major complications also for the fetus, uh, given, uh, the, given the condition uh, that the mom sometimes come in with severe pneumonias and whatnot. So I'm going to touch upon a couple of the vaccine uh, updates. Um, so Novavax, uh, unfortunately, apparently is falling short uh, of uh, their supply. It seems that their, their effectiveness against the coronavirus is almost 80% in the adolescent population, those more than 12 years of age. Uh, but obviously, this data is only, is only one in relation to the Delta variant. So I will take it, um, uh, we'll see what will happen with the Omicron, and hopefully they'll be able to provide uh, some of that data in the future. Uh, and so far, which is um, so far, uh, given that the, uh, the population they've been following, there haven't been any identified myocarditis cases. Obviously, the company is still uh, going to be following this very closely, given the history of the mRNA vaccines with the little uptick in the myocarditis cases uh, following the vaccination. Uh, but it seems this uh, has, so far has been so good. But unfortunately, they are falling short of their supply. Uh, they, were, uh, they were promising um, uh, quite a number of doses by the end of the year, but it seems they they won't be able to pick that up. At least uh, the, uh, the uh, reply from the company is that they'll be, they're doing their best when it comes to supply issues. And obviously, um, uh, given the COVID situation going around and everything, it's not a surprise that this is happening. So a couple of articles came up, which is interesting. Uh, apparently, exercise after getting your COVID-19 shot or your flu shot increases your uh, immune response uh, to the vaccine. So that is something probably you can uh, discuss with uh, uh, with your uh, patients. Uh, just go out, uh, you know, go about your exercise, move around, and everything instead of uh, um, um, managing symptoms at home. Uh, and it has shown that it does increase uh, the immune reaction or immune reaction uh, to the vaccine, and that has been noted both for the COVID and uh, the flu. Exercise in general boosts your immune system in general, but it's nice to see that after vaccination, exercise can also boost your response uh, to certain vaccines, including the flu and COVID-19. One thing I, I noticed uh, also that came up uh, when browsing some of the articles is that uh, you know, when you have a high number of uh, primary care physicians per capita, you also have a high number of uh, vaccination rates uh, against uh, COVID-19. And these, uh, the two uh, maps over here, one of them shows the, um, how much uh, we have or how many we have of the primary care physicians uh, or primary care providers. And uh, the second map shows the correlation almost uh, in uh, the higher uh, vaccination rates. Whether that's a direct causation or not, it's tough to say at this point in time, but there was a quite a significant correlation between the two. So I found both of these articles to be interesting when it comes to COVID-19 vaccination um, issues. 
So what about the world vaccination status? So all, apparently almost, I think, 55 or 60 percent of the world has been fully vaccinated at this point in time, although you can see a, quite a discrepancy between the high income, moderate income and low income countries. So, for example, in low income countries, uh, less than 11 percent have been vaccinated. But kind of the, it balances out when you look at the middle and the lower middle income countries that are almost 55% fully vaccinated and nearly 80% of the upper and middle income and high income countries have been fully vaccinated. Uh, obviously, the fully vaccinated definition, uh, many people argue that probably the booster should be in that definition, but at least the ones that they used here is the two dose vaccine. But it's, uh, it's, it's interesting to see and expect this number when I was reading it is that almost um, uh, 50 or 60% of the world is uh, fully vaccinated when it comes to COVID-19. So we've been hearing talks about waning immunity, the two dose, three dose effectiveness, um, and uh, this has been uh, looked at. Um, and it seems that again, it's nothing out of the, out of the usual when we come when it comes to vaccine, especially when it comes to vaccines that try to prevent respiratory uh, infections, much like the flu and with COVID uh, right now. And uh, again, this is not any anything new or anything of that sort. But definitely, the, the two dose versus the three dose, there is definitely a significant waning immunity, especially when introducing. Omicron into the mix, uh, but the three dose, um, uh, three dose, uh, despite the waning immunity, still provides some effectiveness or some effectiveness against uh, especially hospitalizations, uh, much less so when it comes to emergency department and urgent care uh, use uh, when it comes to uh, COVID-19 related uh, issues. Interestingly enough, a couple of studies, uh, one on the left showed that uh, getting the vaccine for the for COVID-19 does protect you a bit from the other coronaviruses that are out there. Um, uh, the SARS-CoV-1, uh, which is uh, the, SAR, the initial uh, SARS that happened in uh, East uh, Asia um, uh, back in the day, uh, also does a kind of this vaccine, does protect it from it from a certain extent. Not as much as the Middle Eastern respiratory virus uh, that we had, uh, the most uh, recent one prior to COVID. Uh, so, it but it does protect for uh, against the other uh, other coronaviruses. So maybe that's something you may uh, want to talk about with your with your um, uh, with your uh, patients about. Yep, you're getting protected from COVID, but you're also probably going to get protected from the other coronaviruses that are uh, uh, out there that circulate uh, from time to time. Uh, obviously, uh, during the Omicron um, Omicron um, uh, pandemic or Omicron wave that we had, uh, we've seen a good number of cases here at uh, Connecticut Children's uh, coming in with admission, and this was uh, corroborated, corroborated nationally uh, when comparing looking at the admissions from July 2021 to January 2022. There, as the wave came in in December, we saw an uptick in the admission in the cases of admission, um, and fortunately, uh, we not never, at least per, per, from my personal experience, and Dr. Salazar can definitely to that is that we didn't have any major complications when any of these kids, but we definitely saw an uptick in these uh, cases uh, when uh, when the Omicron started to, to pick up in uh, December. Um, again, um, this have, there are a, a bunch of articles coming out, uh, which is, again, um, I, I don't think it's anything surprising is that if you have the infection and you get a vaccine, after that your vaccine immunity kind of picks up uh, quite well. And interestingly enough, some of the articles, although it's a small number, some of the articles are pointing out uh, that the infection vaccine can give you a, a, a kind of a very good uh, amount of months uh, being uh, with a high immunity and everything. 
One caveat with these is that obviously they, uh, the number of cases that they were following. The other thing is that always uh, keep in mind that antibody levels is not a surrogate of immunity. Uh, there are certain tests that need to be done, very specialized tests in research centers. Unfortunately, you can't just uh, send a patient to, uh, to the lab and have this done. Um, and it's uh, looking at the T cell response, looking at the memory, uh, memory cell response, and all of, all of the parts of the immune system as a whole versus looking at just the antibody as a surrogate of uh, immunity. Uh, so keep that in mind when looking at these uh, articles and uh, look and whether or not how much an infection versus one dose or, an, uh, or um, uh, two or three doses can confer immunity between the two. And obviously more research uh, needs to be done just to, uh, just to corroborate these and to make sure that um, we're getting the best information out there. So maternal vaccination during pregnancy, um, again, this is not something unusual and un unsurprising, uh, given that we usually recommend for pregnant ladies uh, to get their Tdap shot, for example, uh, with every pregnancy, because these antibodies, especially for the against the pertussis, will be transmitted to the fetus. And when the baby is born, they're going to be protected for a period of time, uh, at least, um, uh, from uh, catching pertussis until they're able to get their uh, vaccines and get their immunity, own immunity uh, kicking in. So uh, this on the left uh, showed that the anti-spike antibodies in infants following maternal COVID-19 vaccination or not maternal or maternal natural infection does uh, confer does does um, uh, go up uh, almost to five or six months uh, of. Um, uh, of uh, antibody, quite a good number of antibody levels uh, in their uh, system. Uh, and this also was shown by the CDC uh, too, uh, that um, clinic, cl when you correlate it clinically, uh, uh, pregnant women who had their vaccines, uh, vaccines during pregnancy were much more like, were much less likely to have babies go to the hospital because of COVID when they do um, uh, develop COVID. One thing, to re one thing to note is that it's interestingly enough, which again, is not surprising is that if you, if the uh, a pregnant woman get their vaccine way later in pregnancy or early in pregnancy, uh, the effect is not as pronounced. It's kind of in the middle, which is which is unsurprising given that uh, you know um, uh, our immune system will take time to react to the vaccine, will take time to produce the antibodies, and usually by the end of the third uh, trimester, around uh, 34, 33 week uh, uh, mark, and that's where the placenta will start pumping antibodies into the fetus uh, from the mom. So when you have a high level of these antibodies these will definitely transition nicely. So if you get the vaccine late in pregnancy or you get the vaccine early in pregnancy, you may not have with the early, with the early, uh, early um, dose, you may not go get that enough level of antibody by the time the placenta starts pumping the antibodies into the fetus. And by late in pregnancy, you wouldn't have the time for the mother to react to the vaccine to produce enough antibodies to transmit to the fetus. So this was uh, noted uh, during uh, this uh, study. So looking at uh, post-COVID conditions or what we uh, what we usually talk about are the long-haul uh, symptoms uh, due to COVID. Uh, a UK health security agency also looked at the effectiveness of vaccination against long COVID. And it was a quite a, a, a big review of uh, multiple articles out there. Unfortunately, with these articles, many of them, they had var a variety of definitions when it comes to long-haul. So you can't really extrapolate and combine all of this data together. And another thing is that, um, um, again, the number of subjects that they were following was also uh, not, um, when it comes to power of the study, it wasn't that uh, up there. But however, uh, there were many, uh, and uh, at, the, at the end of it, uh, there were many conclusions. So one of the conclusions was, yes, that getting a vaccine during long-haul COVID may relieve your symptoms. That was one observation. Another observation was actually on the other side, is that uh, some, you may get the vaccine, and if you're a long-hauler, you may uh, end up with the more severe symptoms, uh, which, is, um, uh, which is interesting given the contrast with these two, with these two studies. And some of the 
the studies didn't show really any effect that whether you get the vaccine during your long haul or not, it doesn't really produce that much uh, of uh, an issue. Uh, personally, what I've been recommending is if kids come in, which has been less and less uh, since we've uh, seen uh, since this um, pandemic has started, but uh, what I usually recommend still definitely getting the vaccine at least until uh, uh, a ways out, maybe four or six weeks after the acute infection uh, and uh, just making sure so that they do de don't develop another bout of infection in the future or anything of that sort. At least my, that's personally what I've been recommending. Obviously, uh, more studies need to be looked at when it comes to long haul uh, COVID uh, symptoms uh, and whether or not the vaccine works or not or some other uh, agents will be helpful or just a matter of time and managing the symptoms. Uh, it remains uh, to be seen. Uh, just one, a couple of uh, the revised recommendations uh, that I picked up in the last uh, couple of weeks or last since um, Dr. Schreiber's talk is that uh, the ACIP and CDC are considering uh, uh, lengthening the interval between the doses. So instead of doing the three to six weeks, they're looking at eight weeks. And the reason is, uh, is that um, they're looking at the myocarditis cases and trying to mitigate that. But at the same time, you want to make sure that individuals are protected because if you're, if, you're, if you're extending the interval from three to six weeks to eight weeks, you have an eight-week interval where you're not, really, you're, you're not really well protected because you need the two doses at the very least uh, to achieve protection, if not the third dose. Uh, but many countries have already been doing that. So many of the European countries, uh, Canada, for example, is also doing that where they're only at least in general, not all countries are doing exactly that. But in general, what they're recommending is only the Pfizer vaccine for up to 30 years of age, regardless of uh, gender. And they've been also extending it up to eight weeks, some countries even going up to 12 weeks and extending the extending the uh, interval between doses. So it's interesting, the ACIP and CDC are looking into this and seeing whether or not some of the at least the panels over there are recommending it and moving forward. Uh, but it's not official recommendations yet. And we're still waiting on the final word when it comes uh, to this um, kind of uh, extended um, extended interval. And that's definitely uh, hopefully more information to come in the near future about that. One definitely recommendation that was revised is for those who have moderate or severe immune compromised conditions, and there is an easy access website on the CDC that lists exactly who are under that category. Um, the th between the third dose and the booster dose, um, especially when it comes to fi uh, Pfizer and, and especially in our uh, age population, is that you need to wait only for three months uh, from your third dose. You don't have to wait the whole five months to get the vaccine, given that they've so I've seen data that at this, at this point in time, uh, the vaccine the vaccine effectiveness weighs uh, quite considerably and they would need a booster dose in three months versus um, who uh, people who are not immune compromised, uh, they usually would need uh, to wait only five months uh, for their third dose. So recent events, uh, you're, um, again, I've been getting some messages from parents about what to do. The school is gonna going to for optional face mask and all of these stuff, what happened with the, uh, what happened with the shots under the five and what, what happened with that. Uh, so maybe at least personally, I would think they would have uh, should have maybe dealt with it in a more elegant way. Uh, but what happened is Pfizer have noticed that back in December, especially interestingly enough, the ages between two and four years of age, that the two doses weren't really producing that much of an effective vaccine response. Um, and Omicron obviously was starting to pick up in December. Uh, by January, um, uh, late January, since the Omicron, uh, Omicron surge was still going on, the FDA asked Pfizer to just go ahead and present their data to them so that they can uh, they can look at them, especially because the Omicron, very, uh, Omicron surge was still, uh, still increasing. Increasing. And at the same time, the hospitalization rates of, of uh, children was increasing too. So the FDA took uh, the approach and asked, asked Pfizer to present the data and see if there is anything that can be done about that. 
Obviously, since then, the Omicron surge has waned. Um, uh, the, um, uh, obviously, with that, uh, hopefully, children hospitalizations will decrease too. The Pfizer pulled away from the request, given also not just because of these two conditions, but also because they noted during their studies is that they had a low number of cases. And uh, they will present the data again in April, uh, hopefully, so in the next uh, couple of months or so, along with the third dose data, for, especially for those two and four years of age. It's interesting with the two, four, uh, two and four years of age, um, why the vaccine doesn't produce quite an effective response versus those younger. But again, if um, again you got, we all see these in kids that from birth up until up until 18, uh, kids go through many transitional periods during their life. So there could be a transition of, immu of immunity or something of that sort that occurs uh, during this uh, time period. Again, I just want to remind you that we have a much better arsenal when it comes to uh, treating uh, or uh, preventing serious disease when it comes to COVID versus when we started initially where we technically didn't have anything when it came uh, to treating COVID or mitigating as much as possible the risk of getting hospitalized. And so we have uh, quite a number of uh, medications. So we'll start off with sotravimab. Uh, it's an IM medication that's still uh, the, it's 12 years or above or 40 kilograms or above with certain risk factors. And it's uh, usually given to those in the, uh, out, uh, outside the hospital who have mild to moderate disease, it does decrease the risk of severe disease and hospitalization just like other medications and has been recently shown to be effective against the most uh, the uh, Omicron version 2 or Omicron variant B8.2 um, and has been shown to be effective against that. Remdesivir, obviously the one that goes down to 3.5 kilograms or above, it can be used in hospitalized and non-hospitalized patients. The non-hospitalized patient, the downside of it is that it has to be given an IV on a three-day course, uh, so patients have to come into the effusion center to receive that. But we have we had our share of patients who came in um, uh, needing this, uh, and we were able to accommodate them uh, during the week. It also has been shown to be effective against the BA.2 variant. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, the recent oral medication, which is starting to pick up in supply and hopefully will be much more uh, in uh, supply uh, soon, um, uh, the Paxlovid, or it's a combination of two tablets, nermetrelvir and ritonavir. Uh, keep in mind that, uh, all, again, it's small to moderate disease and not hospitalized. Keep in mind there is a whole list of contraindications when it comes to medications and a whole list of, of contra uh, or uh, interactions with so many medications, especially because of the ritonavir uh, component. So keep in mind when in the future you start considering prescribing that to your patient population make sure to go through their um, uh, through the uh, pamphlet of the of the um, medication to make sure that you check off uh, to avoid any uh, issues uh, in the future obviously there are studies ongoing for uh, younger patients uh, hopefully we'll have that uh, more in the future a new, um, uh, uh, again, infusion or a monoclonal antibody, uh, beptilovimab, uh, that was uh, approved uh, in the last couple of weeks or so. Uh, also, it's more or less like sotrovimab. It's effective against the BA.2 variant, Omicron version 2. Uh, and um, it also applies for those with mild to moderate disease, non-hospitalized. Uh, so we do, if you look at all of these medications, we have a whole list of, of these medications ready to be given. And at the same time, we also have the vaccines uh, that are uh, out there. So given the latest guidance uh, from Connecticut, and it's not only Connecticut, a bunch of other states are trying to do, uh, are also uh, going towards that, uh, selecting the date of February 28th, which will be in the next uh, couple of Mondays. Uh, and already, again, was, I was saying that many parents are reaching out uh, to me saying that the school are going to the optional masks. My kids, for example, they sent me an email that they were going to the optional masks uh, for students and staff members, both of them. 
And it's a discussion you have to have with the parents and the patients and try to, especially for those with high-risk conditions, uh, try to, as much as possible, maybe uh, advocate for the mask uh, uh, and keeping it uh, on these kids. Understand sometimes, especially with our younger population, the preschool uh, or, any, or, um, or the first graders, kindergartens, uh, sometimes it's hard to make sure to have the mask on all, uh, all the time. Uh, but again, as I've shown you, we have the vaccines in there, we have the surge uh, going down, uh, we have the um, uh, uh, um, medications uh, to mitigate any serious disease. Uh, and will the virus become an endemic uh, in the near future? That is, uh, remains uh, to be seen. I was just uh, off my phone looking at the um, latest, and apparently uh, with this Omicron uh, surge, uh, there are some models out there that are saying 70 to 73 percent of the U.S. population is immune to Omicron uh, between both the vaccinations and the infection. So that could be uh, a reason why we'll have, uh, we'll have quite, um, uh, quite a bit of a calm spring and summertime, uh, hopefully. But again, this is coronavirus. It has uh, surprised us in the past, and it's a matter of only time uh, will tell. Uh, again, as I said, uh, just to, again, compared to two years ago when we started, we have much knowledge, much more knowledge about the vaccine. We know who, how to quarantine, when to quarantine, how long, uh, identify and testing of potential cases. As I said, we have a huge arsenal against this uh, virus that expanded considerably in the last couple of years. Inpatient care has changed dramatically from, for example, intubating all patients and now kind of um, more aggressive, less aggressive approaches when dealing with patients, especially in the ICU. And the latest variant, uh, at least the Omicron, especially also with the BA.2, at least from earlier data, it doesn't, it, it is very transmissible, but it, it seems to be less and less cases needing hospitalized and lower and lower uh, death rate um, uh, moving forward. Uh, so hopefully we'll, definitely know more about this in the near uh, future and hopefully we'll go more and more into the endemic uh, level of the disease. One thing I want to point out just to um, uh, grab the attention since we're here is that we're starting to see more the flu and it's across the US and it, there is a possibility that especially with the, mask, with the masking mandates uh, being dropped uh, soon there could be a considerable rise in kind of off-season uh, respiratory viruses so I just just like what happened, I think, last summer uh, when we had to, um, uh, RSV started picking up and then we had to start uh, pavilizumab, for example, much earlier than we expected. Uh, so it, you may have, you may see some, uh, you may see a bit of an unusual cases of respiratory viruses that you usually see early, uh, like early in the school year, like around September, October, uh, coming in around uh, this time since the masking will be uh, dropped, uh, mandate lifting soon. Uh, definitely keep those on the differential when seeing patients. Obviously will keep an eye on the RSV case numbers as they come by and to advise what will happen with the palivizumab. And just uh, to let you know that there are a couple of, uh, I think Kentucky and Tennessee have reported outbreaks of uh, bird flu uh, in their poultry. poultry. Uh, so that is something just to uh, keep in mind and Virginia too. So just to keep in mind uh, moving forward that other viruses are out there. And once the mandates will lift, then probably we'll be seeing more of those. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Dr. El-Shabib. Uh, truly, truly wonderful update with lots of information. I think we'll keep the chickens out of the room so that they don't give us anything. Um, and there'll be, there are plenty of questions for you when, when we finish, uh, but now I'm gonna pass it on to uh, uh, Dr. Enos, who's gonna tell us about the cardiology component of COVID-19. James? Hi, thank you. Yeah, I was looking back and it was about almost exactly a year ago that I was here the last time uh, talking on this topic. And um, I think the, the title of evolving practice amid emerging data is just as relevant 
now as it ever was and really applies to just about everything we do in terms of taking care of kids um, during the pandemic. And so um, this is a really important topic um, to kids, most importantly, and families. Uh, in order for them to get back to doing the things that they love to do, their sports, their activities, there's so many important health benefits um, to exercise, to participating in, in organized sports um, that go far beyond the physical fitness things and um, include important mental health benefits and um, the importance of socialization and just having a structured routine. Um, so there's been um, uh, some changes recently to align with the more updated CDC guidelines, which shorten the quarantine, uh, quarantine period um, and isolation periods. And so it seems like a good time to circle back and uh, readdress this topic again uh, in this venue. So our objectives will be to review, um, start with a review of the many important health benefits of participation in sports and young athletes. Um, and, and talk about how screening for COVID-19 in terms of getting back to sports fits into the broader practice of, um, of uh, sports screening uh, for young athletes. We'll outline some goals for a practical and effective screening program, and this will be guided by professional society recommendations, including the American Academy of Pediatrics and American College of Cardiology. And um, the AAP recently updated guidelines at the end of January on the 27th uh, for return to play and um, uh, just sort of the management of interscholastic sports. And so um, we'll review those. We'll talk about some future directions and a little bit of emerging data. Uh, so I like that the guidelines from the AAP really start with um, listing out many of the well-described physical and psychological benefits of uh, exercise and participation in sports in children and adolescents. We know obviously there's the improvement in cardiovascular fitness and maintaining a healthy um, body mass index and body composition, but there's also these really important benefits of so socialization with teammates and coaches, um, the, the benefits of having a structured routine, um, and uh, the immune system benefits of exercise. Uh, you know, we just heard from Dr. Al-Shabib that, um, you know, exercise after receiving the COVID vaccine or other vaccines can actually boost the immune response. Um, so, you know, just another example of, of the overall health benefits of exercise and how important that is. Um, so in terms of um, screening uh, for kids to get back to sports after COVID-19, how does that fit into the broader practice of screening uh, for sports? So this is a really well-defined practice. Um, there's guidelines that are endorsed by several important bodies regarding return to play. And basically there's a pre-participation physical evaluation um, that includes a targeted medical history, family history, and physical exam that really emphasizes the musculoskeletal system and the cardiovascular system um, to make sure um, that these goals are reached. And so some of those goals are to, to maximize safe participation, uh, to remove any unnecessary restrictions on, on participation, um, to rehabilitate injuries, to optimize performance, um, and then of course to uh, screen for some potentially life-threatening um, complications due to underlying conditions, for example, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Um, 
So with that in mind, I'd like to just sort of remind that we all have COVID-19 on the front of our minds these days, but um, the, the other bad actors, so to speak, in cardiology, unfortunately, haven't gone anywhere. So just to not get um, too much tunnel vision and remember some of the others, uh, some of the other um, cardiac issues that can cause sudden cardiac events in athletes which include um, the primary arrhythmias or channelopathies, such as long QT syndrome, uh, myocarditis, which is particularly relevant to the discussion today, uh, cardiomyopathies, anomalous origins of the coronary arteries, uh, and some others just to keep in mind. So focusing in on COVID-19, you know, ultimately the concern is for um, the potential of COVID-related myocarditis triggering sudden cardiac events uh, in, in athletes. And so, you know, how, how does this happen? Um, we know that the uh, virus binds to ACE2 receptors, which are abundant in the lungs, as well as the myocardium or the, the heart muscle cells. Uh, but the mechanism of myocyte injury may not isn't always as straightforward as the virus sort of binding to the myocyte and causing a local inflammatory response. Oftentimes when we see cardiac involvement with COVID-19, it's in patients who have had a more severe course of illness or MISC where there's a multi-system inflammatory response that includes the heart um, and we get myocardial involvement or inflammation in that way. Um, but importantly, there are patients who have had asymptomatic or mild course of, of illness who, who have presented with myocarditis. So, you know, the entity of somebody with a very mild course um, who goes on to develop myocarditis does exist, and that's one of the important things um, that we're screening for in terms of return to play. So just some um, kind of broad considerations for a screening program. We need our screening program to be practical. It needs to be doable in terms of um, through the physician offices and staffing and availability of personnel, but also for families to be able to accommodate that and get in and, 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 um, and, and have um, some screening. Uh, it needs to be accessible and, and equitable. So it needs to be something that is available um, throughout the country. Um, whether in resource-rich or poor areas. It should be effective in identifying at-risk patients. So obviously, it needs to be effective. And then importantly, it needs to not be overly restrictive. Um, so these are sort of the broad goals. So with that in mind, um, there has been uh, some recent updates uh, from important bodies on this. And I thought it would be important just to review the timeline of that. So in the beginning of this year, on January 4th, uh, the CDC updated their COVID-19 isolation and quarantine period uh, down to five days. And so this was really to focus on a period when a person is most infectious, um, followed by continued masking for five days. But the updated recommendations were also um, intended to facilitate social and well-being needs, um, uh, return to work and school for uh, parents and children, and then, uh, you know, a maintenance of critical infrastructure, getting people back to work. Um, and then on January 10th, the Connecticut Department of Public Health updated their guidelines for the operation of interscholastic youth and amateur sports. Um, so, um, you know, not even a week later, um, 
timely update from the Connecticut Department of Public Health. Um, and then the next day, uh, another important body, the Connecticut Interscholastic Athletic Conference, or CIIC, updated um, their guidelines on, on return to play um, and isolation periods to be in line with this. And there was a little bit of a tricky period between that and um, just about two weeks later um, from the AAP updating guidelines on return to play. And this um, happened to coincide with a huge spike um, from from the Omicron. Um, so this, so January was a particularly tricky period, I think, um, for for these types of evaluations. And fortunately, I think it's come to a, a better place for a variety of reasons, uh, but that was certainly um, a tough patch. Uh, so what has changed from the recommendations in January from the AAP and, and what hasn't? Uh, so what has changed is that for patients with um, asymptomatic or, or mild course of symptoms, uh, return to play can really begin on day six, so following the five-day isolation period um, that is recommended for all. And return to play is recommended to begin um, uh, or can begin when fever-free off all fever-reducing medications for one day, where previously this had been 10 days. So that's a big difference there. Um, and then also with they have to have improving symptoms. Um, and then another important update, which I think is really helpful, is that there's a more practical approach to the stepwise progression to full activities, um, which is a little bit shorter for both mild and moderate uh, level patients. And so we'll review that today, and I think that's going to make things a little bit easier in terms of our own counseling of families, and certainly for coaches and teams um, out there, uh, you know, living this. Um, so what hasn't changed? Uh, what hasn't changed is the general approach of screening based on severity of illness, so whether it's been mild, moderate, or severe symptoms related to COVID, and then the definition of those categories remains the same. Uh, so that's nice. It's kind of easy to follow. Um, screening is based on symptoms and not on vaccination status. So there has been there was some conjecture that uh, the the updated guidelines might include a qualifier for vaccination status, but I think it actually makes a lot of sense to really still focus on um, uh, severity of symptoms, whether they were mild, moderate, or severe, because we, of course, know that patients who have been vaccinated are much more likely to have a milder course. Um, but if, for example, one had a more moderate or severe course, we wouldn't want them not to have appropriate screening just based on the fact that they have been vaccinated. So um, I, I think um, that was actually a really um, uh, smart way to, to continue to do this. Um, and then patients with moderate symptoms, um, I think it's important to note, still require 10 days from symptom onset or a positive test prior to return to play. And the reason for that is that a lot of patients who have had moderate level symptoms, um, you know, may be more uh, subject to some of that multi-system um, or inflammatory response that can impact the heart um, rather than the rare case of isolated or, or sort of acute myocarditis following a more mild course of illness. So getting into the meat of the screening algorithm here, um, you know, who do we include in sort of a return to play algorithm? 
we're including patients who are five and older, um, just to kind of keep it simple, and generally um, putting the cutoff at age five because lower than that, um, kids generally not participating in competitive level sports or, or really vigorous conditioning or athletic training, um, just really more of, of play at that point. Um, and then, you know, importantly, a, a lot of times patients are coming and saying, um, you know, oh yeah, I did have COVID three months ago or four months ago, and they, they didn't report it or didn't check in in the primary care setting. So you just kind of learn about that. And many of these um, families or patients have progressed back to sports already. And so what's nice is that in the guidelines, there is a little carve out for those patients. And basically, you know, the idea is just to ask if they're having any symptoms of cardiac involvement. And if the answer is no, they can continue on playing um, if they've already progressed back. Uh, so then moving on to just kind of putting everybody into what's the initial management for all uh, comers. And the initial management is just obviously to inform patients to isolate per CDC guidelines um, to, uh, and that, you know, um, explain that exercise um, should be avoided until um, the following criteria have met, which are the isolation period is complete and um, patients have been fever-free off all fever-reducing medications for at least one day. And that's when we divide into um, the categories based on symptomatology. So we have an asymptomatic or mild category, a moderate level category, and a severe level category. Um, and when we talk about cardiac symptoms, we're talking about chest pain consistent with a cardiac etiology, uh, shortness of breath that's really out of proportion to URI symptoms, uh, syncope, which is not clearly vasovagal in etiology, and then um, new onset palpitations are the things that we're most um, acute to pay attention to. And then um, how do we define moderate level symptoms as opposed to mild? This uh, fortunately has not changed. So four days of fever to 100 point, higher than 100.4, a week or more of some of the other symptoms like myalgias, chills, or lethargy, um, requiring hospitalization but non-ICU and without MISC, and then um, based on clinical judgment if there's something in particular that seems like it's pushing that patient into a more moderate level category. Uh, and then severe level symptoms are requiring ICU admission, diagnosis of MISC, um, inotropic support, intubation, um, and then previous abnormal cardiac testing. These things would all qualify as severe. Uh, and then also a category for clinical judgment there. So how do we uh, screen each category here? So for the asymptomatic or mild symptoms, um, an evaluation is recommended in the primary care setting. And you know, importantly, um, within the guidelines, it's pointed out that this can occur as a phone um, evaluation or a telemedicine evaluation and doesn't necessarily have to be um, in person. I think this speaks a lot to the practicality approach to this for both physician offices and for patients. Um, there's just so many patients out there who have had asymptomatic or mild illness, there needs to be a practical approach to this. And so being able to do this remotely or by phone is very helpful. 
And the idea is to ask those screening questions for cardiac involvement, um, you know, that we just reviewed. Uh, chest pain, palpitations, um, episodes of syncope, severe shortness of breath. And um, if those things are not present, the patient had a typical mild or asymptomatic course, um, they can return to play uh, so long as their routine sports uh, evaluations are complete. And then um, if they do happen to screen positive for any of those questions, um, you know, I, I think asking a little bit more to find out how severe their symptoms are, considering a, a, an ECG quickly um, or re referral to cardiology for, for further evaluation is the right thing to do in those cases. And then cardiology will guide the evaluation and the return to play criteria from that point. For moderate level symptoms, again, an evaluation um, is recommended through the primary care setting, but for, for a moderate level symptom, um, an in-office evaluation with a physical examination is recommended, and then also to go ahead and obtain the EKG or ECG uh, for patients who have had moderate level symptoms. And so if, if um, the evaluation is reassuring, including that they're not having any cardiac uh, symptoms, that there's nothing on physical exam suggestive of cardiac inflammation, um, and that the ECG is normal, um, then those patients can return to play following uh, 10 days of symptom, have passed from symptom onset or from their positive test. And of course, we, always want, we also wanna make sure these patients are fever-free for at least one day with improving uh, symptoms before returning to play. And then um, for any patient who does have positive cardiac signs or symptoms or an abnormal EKG suggestive of inflammation or injury, um, then referral to cardiology for further evaluation uh, and helping to guide return to play criteria after that is appropriate. So then um, severe level symptoms, uh, don't need to spend too much time on this. Usually these patients already have cardiology involvement due to their severe course of illness. Um, hospitalization, ICU course, um, and for these patients, we're following in the long term with cardiac MRI, stress testing, rhythm monitors, um, and um, for any patient who's had actually had myocarditis, they're restricted uh, for at least three months uh, until that inflammation can clear uh, and um, and have uh, some further evaluation before getting back to sports. So. Um, when patients are ready to progress back to their activities and get back to doing what they enjoy, um, what's the safe way to do it? Uh, the recommendation is for patients who are less than 12 years old to be able to go ahead and progress back to sports according to their own tolerance. Um, and for patients who are 12 or older to have a graduated return to play. Um, but all patients, including those less than 12 or older, the families and the patients should be counseled on um, what the symptoms to monitor for cardiac symptoms, and those are the ones that we described previously. Chest pain, severe shortness of breath, palpitations, or syncope. Um, and then for asymptomatic or mild symptoms, this is something new in the updated recommendations. More practical approach, uh, two days, what's recommended is two days of increase in physical activity, um, and it says specifically within the guidelines, um, i.e. one light practice, one normal practice, and then no games before day three. Um, and then of course, if there's any symptoms with light or normal practices to go ahead and pause and circle back with a, with a pediatrician. Um, moderate, for patients with moderate symptoms, a minimum of four days of gradual increase is recommended. Um, and uh, the way that's described in the guidelines is one light cardio workout on your own. Um, 
or you know, with a, a chaperone, a parent at home, two light practices uh, through a sports program, one full practice, and then no games before day five. So I think this is kind of more practical. Um, it's not you know so specific about peak heart rates or max exercise and certain things, um, but I think it's easier for people to kind of make sense of and, and follow. Um, and just a note that a mask is required for 10 days uh, for games and scrimmages. Um, even though you're getting back, there's still some infectivity. Um, and so just to help protect uh, the others on the team, uh, the masking is recommended still for 10 days. So um, in terms of future directions, further investigations into the basic pathophysiology and mechanisms of heart cell injury from COVID um, are underway. One thing that would be particularly helpful would be prospective studies evaluating for evidence of myocardial injury based on symptom category. Um, and then additional data will help us refine the screening algorithms even more um, to identify at-risk athletes effectively, um, but optimizing the efficiency, equity, and, and resource utilization. So these are some resources, the one call system, the clinical integrated network, um, a contact number for cardiology in your local AAP chapter. Um, here's some references for the talk and uh, happy to take some questions. Thank you, uh, uh, James. That was uh, really clear, uh, well delineated, and I think uh, very practical for our uh, providers for sure. Uh, so why don't you stay on the podium? I'll ask, uh, there, there are a number of questions and they're about equally divided. Uh, from one of our guests, have there been any reliable reports of severe adverse cardiac effects from COVID vaccine in pediatric patients? You know, we have certainly seen um, post-vaccine um, myoepipericarditis following the mRNA vaccines. Um, you know, I, I think an important counseling point uh, in this regard is that um, cardiac involvement from COVID-19 much more frequently than cardiac involvement um, from a side effect of a vaccine. And the myocarditis from, um, from the actual virus seems to have a much more severe course than the myocarditis from the vaccine. So I think that those are important counseling points that I like to review with families on that. Yeah, and we'll post uh, an article for all of you that was uh, from circulation. We, we actually were part of that study. Um, and uh, before the end, we'll I'll give Liz a, a, uh, the link to the circulation paper, which confirms that the the myocarditis associated with the vaccine, in in ninety eight percent of the cases, returns to you know basically they, those kids return to have normal function and normal hearts. Right. right. Um, any permanent cardiac injury or death? Um, and again, I think the answer is no for the for the vaccine. I think that's uh, now. So how many in terms of uh, of COVID infection? How many reported? cardiac events have you seen here at Connecticut Children's? So we've certainly had patients come in with ventricular arrhythmias um, that presented as syncopal episodes, um, some with exertion, but some with just kind of activity of, of daily living. Um, you know, and the, and the idea there is that there's um, some smoldering myocardial inflammation that's causing um, irritation of the heart, heart muscle cells, which predisposes to arrhythmia. And you know, with exercise and exertion um, and sort of the catecholamine response and elevated heart rates that go along with that, that could predispose to um, having a sudden cardiac event. Um, so that being said, um, fortunately, the cases that we've seen have come in as syncopal episodes, palpitations, near syncope, um, 
related either to activities of daily living or mild exertion. I personally haven't seen um, you know, a patient that's died from sports participation with myocardial inflammation, but there are certainly reports out there. Uh, a question from Dr. Segul. It seems that DPH and CAIC recommend but do not require MD clearance before students return to sports. How should schools handle the situation when the student meets the AAP criteria for returning to sports but have not had an actual medical clearance? Yeah, that's that's tough. Um, <laughs> so, so um, you know, I think one thing that's a little bit tricky about the guidelines too, um, the updated guidelines, is that um, in one paragraph, it sort of says, um, uh, return to play can begin when fever-free off all fever-reducing medications for one day, and then uh, with improving symptoms overall. And then in the next paragraph, it sort of it says that there needs to be symptom resolution, except for loss of taste and smell, which can take weeks. Um, and so I think, you know, taken in the best possible light, um, some of these discrepancy, um, discrepancies leave room um, for clinical judgment, um, for one. And, you know, I, I think it's important to remember that we do have an opportunity to ask patients about symptoms, um, you know, if they're having chest pain, palpitations, dizzy spells, syncope, severe shortness of breath, and um, counsel them regarding that so that they can sort of participate in a shared decision-making model with with the information they need to, to make safe decisions. And so um, whenever there's sort of discrepancies in general, I like to rely on those principles of doing what we can do and arming patients and families with information to make smart decisions on their own behalf. And I think that that can go along as um, guidance to, you know, people who are um, organizing sports and those kinds of things as well. Dr. Shabib, if you can come to the podium, please. Um, does vaccination decrease the risk of long-term complications of COVID? Yeah, so as I noted in the survey from the UK, uh, it seems that some patients do, their long-haul COVID symptoms just uh, resolve with vaccination. Some of them would actually uh, worsen, and some of them didn't really uh, matter between the vaccinations or not vaccinated. Keep in mind, all of these studies were observational studies. None of them were kind of um, uh, looking at this more deeply. And at the same time, it's the definition between all of these studies, multiple studies, uh, the long-haul symptoms was defined uh, in various durations and various severities. So uh, at this point in time, I don't think there is uh, any evidence uh, whether or not the COVID vaccine will worsen symptoms or not. Personally, what I've been doing is recommending the vaccination, um, uh, given just to make sure that they're well protected uh, in the future. Uh, but as an answer to your question, there is no definite answer whether this is yes or no, unfortunately. But I think the, the, the vaccine does prevent complications associated with COVID-19. And I think the, the, you know, there, there's, a, yeah, there, there's, a, there's a very, there, there's an excellent paper that was published recently looking at the risk of heart disease, including thromboembolic events in adults with COVID-19, even with mild disease, and it was pretty significant. Uh, so I think vaccination, in my opinion, will prevent those complications. Um, what is there? An, is there a COVID vaccine option for a child with uh, PEG allergy? At this point in time, I'm the only approved vaccine uh, for children in the U.S., at least less than 18 years of age, is the Pfizer vaccine, which does contain PEG. Um, what I would recommend is discussing definitely with an allergist and identifying is this a true allergy or not. And hopefully in the future we'll have uh, options for these kids, but um, at this point in time, no. Yes. Uh, any data on COVID-19 vaccine precipitating or reactivating glomerular nephritis? I haven't seen any articles concerning that. This is uh, the first time I've heard about this question. Um, 
but I've never come, uh, I haven't come across uh, any of this data yet. Hassan, have we seen uh, uh, Missy associate, associate with Omicron? Uh, so uh, I was on service a couple of weeks ago and I had uh, five or six patients uh, on the ward uh, with what looked like MISC slash Kawasaki. Uh, so definitely we did see uh, that uh, during the surge. One caveat you have to keep in mind is that in early January, Connecticut has had still 20 to 30 percent Delta. So hopefully in the future we have more information about that. But yes, during the Omicron uh, surge and at least at the tail end of it, we did see good, a good number of MISC cases. Uh, Bruce Cohen comments that for certain sports, masks are not recommended due to concerns of strangulation, and I guess I would agree that with that. You probably should return on day 11, specifically wrestling, swimming, diving due to masks getting wet. So, yes, I, I think if you're diving, you probably should not be wearing a mask, right? And So, thank you, Bruce. <laughs> yeah, and especially with the, at least with open uh, outdoor uh, uh, doesn't seem to be um, a mandate for vaccines as important as that for, for masking. But I yeah, but I agree with you definitely. Okay, we, we're uh, it's nine o'clock already. That uh, just do a couple more questions. Uh, is there a difference between and this was uh, James would be for you or for either one of you a difference between myocarditis, pericarditis as a result of the disease versus vaccine? So I can speak uh, and definitely uh, uh, James can uh, uh, comment on that is that uh, COVID vaccines uh, uh, versus disease, you have a much less uh, severe disease. Kids usually get out of the hospital quite soon. And I think uh, long term, it hasn't been an issue, but I'll let James uh, comment about that. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, it tends to be uh, much less severe. Kids recover quickly. They get out of the hospital. Um, we're not seeing lots of reduction in function. And when we do, we see full recovery quickly, um, which is not the case for um, for COVID-related myocarditis or, or cardiac involvement from MISC. Um, those are typically associated with much more severe course of illness, longer recovery times, um, and uh, you know potential for more long-term issues. So, so we'll see. We're going to monitor that. There hasn't been enough time to truly know the long-term effects, but more to come. Yeah, and and the last one I think for Hassan's uh, be for you, and this is an interesting question, and this will be a problem with masks in school becoming optional. How should schools handle a child sick with COVID? who isolates five days and then returns to school, and CDC recommends masking indoors from day six to 10. That's gonna be tricky. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting uh, question, and that's uh, actually a very great uh, catch. Um, uh, I guess, I mean, the, the, one, the one way to deal with this is that to recommend the, the uh, masking uh, in school. It's gonna be tricky whether to, are we going to keep that mask on or not. I'm not sure what, I'm not sure what the school stance will be at that point in time with somebody who was infected five days they're good to go back to school and whether they will enforce uh, the masking for certain people who had uh, the COVID and before that's I would expect the school to but it's just uh, with time we'll hopefully have that more clarified. If, thank you Hassan. We have a we, before we log off uh, we, we do have a recognition I'm going to ask uh, our CME team leadership to come up to the podium and uh, Liz if you can make yourself available also it would be greatly uh, go ahead uh, Ken. This is Liz Anderson's last day with us, and uh, I can't, I couldn't have asked for anyone more than you who has brought us through the last several years. You have been a rock star. Your dedication to the department, your work, uh, I can't say enough superlatives. So we just would like to wish you the very best going forward, and thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you, everyone. We'll see you on Tuesday and then on March 4th for the next session. And we're not going to let her go. We're going to lock her up. All right, okay. take care. Bye-bye. <laughs>